Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to begin to read at verse 13. This is God's word to us, and therefore we can trust it completely. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went, and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Well, let's turn together to uh, Matthew 2, those verses that we read earlier, end of uh, the second chapter of Matthew, and the end of Matthew's account of the what we sometimes call the infancy narratives, the, the, the birth story of Jesus. I'm sure we all approach uh, this new year differently. Some of us perhaps take the opportunity to review our lives and make lots of resolutions, and uh, so far they're going really well. Um, some of us, however, have been burned by the unused gym memberships and uh, dusty diet plans of the past years, and we've resolved uh, not to make any resolutions at all. That's uh, my favorite resolution. Um, and h- however we approach this uh, time of year, we've got to know that if we are to, um, <coughs> if we are to trust in the Lord Jesus, um, if he is, as John was praying, if he is to be supreme for us in this year, then we've got to know that he is worth it, that, that we really can uh, throw ourselves upon him knowing that he is worth it. And if we're going to know that he is worth it, it means that we've got to continually be reminded of who he is and what he has done for us, and therefore that he's, he's worthy of our absolute trust and our commitment. And today we're, we're finishing off this um, journey through Matthew's birth stories, and, and that's really uh, what I think we're going to see, that he is worth trusting, that he's worth living our lives for. Now, 
uh, at the end of, of Matthew 2, uh, we find this part of the story that, that we've got to be fair, is often left out. Uh, often the story ends with the wise men. It's a bit like uh, turkey. Nobody really wants to eat turkey. Uh, coming into the new year, you want to leave it behind. Uh, once you've done your sandwiches and your curry, that's about as much as you can sort of stomach off it. And sometimes we sort of feel, well, we've done Christmas and, and we leave the, the, the Christmas story behind or the birth narrative behind. But Matthew really does want us to take this part of the story into account. He has got things to say to us here. He's still wanting to say to us, this child has come and, and do you see who he is? And do you see why he's the one that we've been waiting for and why he's the one that we need? At the same time, it's a, it's a dark part of the story. Uh, Jesus is in danger from Herod. His family flee to Egypt. Herod commits this terrible atrocity in Bethlehem. And, and Jesus is safely kept out of way, uh, harm's way because uh, God is at work to make sure that his son is protected. And that's what the boys and girls are thinking about uh, next door. And what we've got to realize is that, as we were saying with the boys and girls, this attempt to get rid of Jesus is just the latest in a long line of attempts by the evil one to prevent Jesus from coming or prevent him from doing his work. My old minister in Aberdeen, William Still, he wrote a number of little booklets, and one of them was called Sweeping Through the Old Testament. And he, he told the, the, the story of the Old Testament. He just sort of journeyed through the Old Testament in this book. And uh, he showed that how, in, in many ways and in many stages, <clears throat> the evil one was, was seeking to, to crush the, the royal line to stop Jesus coming because he knew that Jesus was promised. Remember right from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, God says, between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan knew that the one that God was going to send was going to be the one who would crush his head. And so he, he was at work to make sure in his arrogance, he said, I will not let that happen. And, and one of the ways then of thinking of the Old Testament story is, is thinking, how is it that the evil one is at work to stop Jesus arriving? He wants to lead God's people astray to, to ruin them. He wants to wipe them out through oppression so that there's no line from which Jesus will spring. And yet, of course, despite all of his efforts, God carefully preserves his people, especially the family tree of Jesus. And now, whenever Jesus arrives, what do we see? Well, there's this fresh attempt through Herod, his lieutenant at that time, the evil one again, trying to wipe out Jesus before he can crush his head. And, and so these things that we see in this passage are just part of that ongoing battle between the evil one and the purposes of God. Great uh, Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, he said this, if once the curtain were pulled back, I think we've got it on the screen, if once the curtain were pulled back and the spiritual world behind it came into view, it would expose to our spiritual vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, sweeping everything within its range that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. You think of some of the battles that this world has, has seen, the Somme, Stalingrad, Hiroshima. And these things, Kuiper says, tiny in comparison to the battle that rages behind the scenes 
of this world in the spiritual realm. And today, what we're looking at is part of that struggle. And we do remember, we do well to remember that, that it's still a struggle going on. The evil one absolutely committed, now that he's failed to stop the work of Christ, still committed to opposing the purposes of God within our world and within our church and within our lives. And so whatever else we think about this year, we've got to know that it is a year in which this struggle will continue unless the Lord returns. Well, it is a struggle in which Jesus is protected. He is highly vulnerable, of course, at this point. He's a small child uh, born into a family with limited resource, and yet God protects him uh, because he knows that he uh, is the one that we need as Savior and the one who has come to be our King. So let's see what this passage then says about Jesus. Matthew structures this part of the story around uh, fulfilled prophecy. In chapter 2, verse 6, you see, uh, he tells us about Bethlehem in order to show us that Jesus was born there according to the, uh, the prophecies uh, of the prophet Micah. And then in chapters uh, 2, verses 13 to 23, what we're looking at, he tells us about three other incidents that are all fulfillments of prophecy. He tells us about Jesus and his family fleeing to Egypt, about the slaughter of the children in Bethlehem, and then about Jesus' return to Nazareth. And in each case, you'll see that Matthew says something like this. He says, now, this happened uh, so that it would be fulfilled, uh, that, that this prophecy that had been written all these years ago would be fulfilled. That's what he says in each of these cases. So we're going to see here that Jesus is a delivering king, a conquering king, and a humble king. So a delivering king. First thing that Matthew tells us about is this escape to Egypt, the flight to Egypt. Just as the angel warned the wise men not to go back to Herod, so an angel warned Joseph about Herod. You see verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, Egypt is in some ways, a natural place to flee to. It's about 90 miles from Bethlehem to the border and, and, and maybe a, a little bit more then to somewhere that would be suitable. Uh, Egypt was a place where there was a lot of uh, Jewish people living. Uh, the uh, Jewish community there in Alexandria, for example, was uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews at that time. They, com they comprised two-fifths of the population of the city. Uh, we're not given any indication of the time scale here, but most likely Mary and Joseph and Jesus stayed in Egypt for maybe something like six months before Herod died, and very possibly they resourced that journey through the wise men's uh, costly gifts that enabled them to pay for this uh, time uh, away. But the thing that Matthew sees is that is important is the link that he makes with the prophecy. You see it in verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, <clears throat> this is a quote from Hosea. It's reflecting on the rescue of God's people out of Egypt, the Exodus. And we've spoken before about how Matthew tells this story with a, a view to the Exodus in the past. Sinclair Ferguson describes it like this. A family goes down to Egypt. A child is rescued from a wicked ruler. He grows up and leads his people out of their bondage. They pass through the waters of the sea. They're tested in the wilderness. And eventually they reach the borders of the promised land. That, that's the exodus. 
And now you see, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true son. He comes out of Egypt. He goes through the waters of his baptism. He's tested in the wilderness. You know the, the, the temptations in the wilderness. And you see, he's the, he's the better Moses, and he's the true son. He's the true Israel. And you might know that later on in this story, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he, he appears with, with two people, with Moses and Elijah. And, and we're, we're told that he is talking about his departure. And the word that is used is his exodus. He's, he's as it were, saying to Moses now, you know, that the, the exodus you went through was, in, was incredible. But I'm here to, to lead God's people through a fuller and better exodus. Moses' exodus prefigured what Jesus had come to do. <clears throat> I don't doubt that, that many of us enter this year with a, a degree of trepidation. I, I think it sort of depends upon our age a little bit. Some of us, if we're younger, we want to get 2023 and we want to just grab it and say, I'm going to make everything, I'm going to squeeze it all out of you. I've left those days behind quite some time ago. And, and now, now I think we, if we're a little bit older, maybe we, we, we're just aware of, of how fragile things can be, how, how random things can appear, difficult things come upon us with no warning. And we look at our world and we, we wonder how much more it will sink and mess up in the months ahead, how much more broken it will appear. And we just long for something solid to hold on to, don't we? But, but here's, here's something for us. If we're Christians, if we're Christians, this is saying that our greatest need is for a Savior, one who will come and defeat our, our greatest enemy of sin and death. And of course, this has happened. He has come. And, and if we are His, then what He did he did for us. He did it for you. And, and, and so rather than, than look ahead with, with trepidation, we may say, Lord, I don't know what this, world, this year holds, but I do know that I enter it with the most wonderful thing already achieved for me. I thank you that my sins are paid for, that my deliverance is sure. I thank you that, that, that Jesus won an exodus for me. We really ought to, to look to the future with a, with a quiet confidence because we, we have already the greatest thing that we need. And of course, if we're here today or we're listening today and we're not yet Christians, we, we should know that this is both our, our greatest need, but that Christ is also available for us. We, we don't know, need, need anything more than Him. There is no crisis that you will face that is more pressing than the one he came to address. And yet he's done that. And you may have him if you will have him. He's the delivering king, you see. He's also the conquering king in the sense that he's conquering a suffering. Matthew moves on to, to tell us about this terrible incident where a Herod orders the slaughter of all the, the male children in Bethlehem up to two years old. There's no record of this happening outside of Scripture, but in many ways it's not untypical of Herod. We, we've seen that he was an incredibly cruel tyrant. And, and Bethlehem's a little, little place. 
It's been suggested that the, the number involved was probably about uh, 20 boys, 20 children. So set against some of the other things that Herod did, it's a, it's a smaller thing. We might see why it didn't hit the headlines, but you can imagine just how absolutely devastating it was for that population. You can just see that the, the hatred, the satanic hatred. You, you, you know, maybe we should understand that if, if, if the reins were taken off Satan, he would do this in every village. He'd do this in every town. He hates those who bear the image of God. He wants to destroy. And again, Matthew sees the, the significance of it in the light of the Old Testament record. He quotes a verse from 30, Jer- Jeremiah 31 in verses 17 and 18. This is what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A prophet, a, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This was talking about a time when the people of Jerusalem were being led away into exile and they passed Rachel's tomb on the way in Ramah, a town just outside the city, And Jeremiah pictures Rachel weeping for her children as they are taken off into this terrible exile. And what's the link? Well, it's it's just this time of great sorrow. And Matthew is emphasizing that Jesus' birth is, is marked by this tremendous sorrow. He's drawing out the fact that Jesus came into this world of of brokenness and pain. Jesus, the the second Adam, came to put right what Adam had done put wrong. Adam was born into an idyllic garden in Eden, and Jesus was born into our fallen world, marked as it is by pain and suffering. And Bethlehem would become particularly known for that because of the slaughter of these little ones. When Isaiah describes the Lord Jesus, he says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and familiar with suffering, familiar with suffering. For lots of people, Christmas is an escape, isn't it? No no matter how hard everyday life is, they sort of uh, set aside that, and and they seek, well, I'm going to enjoy myself at Christmas, and they celebrate, but but it's just an escape sometimes from the reality of life being tough. And, And yet the real encouragement of Christmas is not that it offers an opportunity for escape, but that it tells us about one who didn't try to escape the sorrows of life, but who came into them, who came into to be familiar with suffering. And so whenever we, we weep or we're hurting or we're grieving, we know that there is one to turn to who's, who's not insulated from that, but whose very life was marked out by it. The sadness of what happens in the time of his birth reminds us of that. And yet there's more, isn't there? Because the great news is that Jesus didn't only come to understand us in our suffering, but to, to do more than share in our sorrow. He came to end it, to deal with the pain and sorrow. As one writer says, the cries of Rachel are passing, and one day the tears will turn to laughter. Isaiah goes on to speak of Jesus like this. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. So he's the one who not only shares in them, but he carries them. And he takes them to the cross because he carries sin and death and pain to the cross. 
And one day, all of that will be removed entirely. And what we read in Revelation will be the case. No more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So he's the conquering king, familiar with suffering, but the one who comes to bring an end to it. And so when our lives are, are marked by, by tears, we've got to be sure that this one who we turn to has taken the causes of our crying so that we may know that they are temporary because he will bring an end to all such things. Conquering king. One last thing, he's the, he's the humble king. When, when, when Herod died, Joseph gets another visit from an angel and he's told to go back to Israel. And when he realizes that Herod's son, Archelaus, uh, when Herod died, his, his lands were sort of divided up between uh, four sons, and, and, and uh, he, he's ruling over uh, Judea, and uh, he goes further north into Galilee, specifically to Nazareth, where uh, uh, another uh, son was reigning. Herod Archelaus was, was incredibly cruel, and perhaps uh, Joseph felt that, that it would have been safer a little bit further away from him. So Joseph and Mary returned to Nazareth. Nazareth is just a little place, thousand inhabitants, perhaps, not very highly thought of. So think, you know, port it down, you know. <laughs> couldn't couldn't let couldn't get let Lurgan get off with it, with it, with it, with it, we roasting this morning. I thought we better even things up a wee bit. So 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 it's a, it's a Nazareth is a, is a byword. It's a byword for being rough and uncouth. All right. Do you remember in John uh, chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael hears that Jesus comes from Nazareth, and he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So it's, just a, it's a byword for a place where you just imagine there's nothing good comes out of it. And yet the fact that Jesus came from Nazareth, for Nathanael was an argument uh, for, for him being anything but special. And yet Matthew's point is, that it's actually a point to him saying he is the Messiah. See what it says in verse 23? And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Now, that's not a, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. Maybe some people think it was a prophecy that was not in the Bible but was well known at the time. But maybe, I think more likely, it was Matthew just summing up that the message of the Scriptures, here's what God does. Because this is exactly the sort of thing that we might expect from a God who sends His humble, suffering servant into the world. Nazareth is not an argument against Jesus being God's Son, but an argument for Him coming into the God's world with all of the markers of God's character eh, around Him. Because this is how God plans that His Savior King would come. He would come in humility. God was to allow His Son to come to the lowest place, Nazareth, because He had come to go to an even lower place, the cross. It was through the shame of the cross, the weakness of the cross, that we would be saved. So you see again, Matthew's just saying, look, do you see who He is? He's, he's the humble king. He, he lives in Nazareth. His beginnings are, are fitting for the course of his life that would take him to the cross. So, 
again, we come into this year and, and there will be times, there will be times for all of us, when we will ask the question, does God care for me? Does God care for me? What does he think of me? And, and one of the things that we should know is if, if we're believers, we should know that, that he has stooped so low for us. He came in humility for you. Do you know, I, I got this week, I got a, a potato box of blocks for, for, for the stove, like wood. And, uh, and we, 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 we gathered them when they were dry and we wanted to put them into shelter. And so we were, we were leaning into this box to get out the blocks to put them into shelter. And, and, and there was the ones right at the bottom and the wee scrappy ones and they're all covered in dust and so on. And we had to lean right down into the box to drag them out and to keep them safe. And you know, Jesus just stooped so low to get us because you know where we were? The bottom of the box. He went right to the bottom because not one of his people would be missed. And so we may know that we have been reached for and he is lifting us up and one day taking us to the highest of heights. He's the humble king. So, delivering king, conquering king, humble king. And all of this is to say, as we enter a year, we can trust him. We can trust him. Look at him carefully. It's the most logical thing in the world. Sometimes our logic doesn't work very well, but it's the most logical thing in the world to say, Lord Jesus, if this is who you are, if this is who you are, I can trust you, and I'm going to follow you.